Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and CEO of Mind Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the Mind Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. I'm honored to have this week's guest back on the podcast for the second time. He's a man who truly needs no introduction, who's authored over 25 New York Times bestselling books, spiritual icon, Dr. Deepak Chopra. Deepak, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Jason. So second time you're you're here and we covered so much ground and for this episode we're going to go deeper in a couple topics we find really intriguing right now and that you're really knowledgeable and passionate about and the first one being consciousness. What is consciousness? So the way I use the word consciousness is the same as synonymously uh, with uh, the word awareness. Awareness is fundamental to any experience you have. So before you have a thought, there is awareness. And these days this expression mindfulness is becoming very popular and I feel a little uncomfortable about that because actually mindfulness is not awarefulness. The awareness of the mind is not the mind. The awareness of a thought is not the thought. The awareness of a perception is not the perception itself. So what is awareness or consciousness? Consciousness is that uh, in which all experience occurs, right? This experience that we are having, you and me, and people who are listening to us, where is this happening? This experience has happening in consciousness. Where else could it be? If you say it's happening in the brain, um, the experience itself is not happening in the brain. You know, there's no sound in the brain, and yet you're hearing sound. Okay, There's no color in the brain, and yet you see colors. There's no <laughs> sensation in the brain, yet you feel sensations. Where is the experience of your body, your mind, and that which we call the universe happening? And this is called the hard problem of consciousness. Nobody knows. Some people, you know, it depends on your bias. If some, if I ask somebody, where's the experience of seeing me happening? Some people, based on their training, if they're eye specialists, they say it's happening in the eyes. Well, if actually seeing was happening in, in the eyes, your eyes are 2.5 centimeters by 2.5 centimeters. They're about uh, nine centimeters apart. By the time light gets into your eyes and hits the retina, it goes through the lens, it gets inverted. The retina is curved. If the experience of seeing me was happening in your eyes, then you should see two of me upside down and curved. (laughs) And 
Furthermore, the two of me should be about 2.5 centimeters and upside down and nine centimeters apart. I've asked this question of people who are experts in, say, ophthalmology, and they don't know how to answer this. Then some, if you talk to a neuroscientist, they'll say it's happening in the brain. Well, the brain is 10.10 centimeters by 7 centimeters by 12 centimeters, something like that in size, three pounds of mostly fat and protein and chemicals like carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. How do you, how, if you're seeing me in the brain, how do I fit inside your brain? We look at the Empire State Building, how does that fit inside your brain? How does the Milky Way galaxy fit inside your brain? So, you know, we have these assumptions that experience happens in the brain, in the eyes, but nobody can say how. And so, right now, this become a huge issue among scientists. What's the biological basis of experience or consciousness? Where science is extremely helpful is that you can track any experience by looking at the neural correlates of experience. They're called NCC, neural correlates of consciousness. So when you speak, when you and I speak, your auditory cortex starts blipping with electrochemical activity. But where does the sound get produced and how does the sound get produced? There's no sound in the physical world. All there is is vibration of air molecules. There's no color in the physical world. When you look at a book and you say it's a red book, all that's coming from the book to your eyes are colorless photons. There are no red waves. There's no color in the brain. There's no color in the eyes, but you're seeing color. How does that happen? So where I'm going with this understanding is consciousness, the, first of all, the place where experience occurs. Second, it's the place where you know there is an experience. Not only is there an experience, you know you're having the experience. It's the knowing element in the experience. And here's the third part, which I am really promoting now. And that is, you will not solve the hard problem of consciousness if you think the physical world is real. This is called realism. Okay, so if you assume the physical world, if your ontological assumption, you know, everything, every science, every philosophy, every theology, every doctrine, every philosophy, every metaphysics starts with an assumption. And science starts with the assumption that the physical world is real. And that matter is real. Now, why that's a problem is, if you ask scientists, what is matter made of? They'll say, well, it's made of molecules. What are molecules made of? Atoms. What are atoms made of? Particles. What are particles? Now we get into situations, smaller particles. What are they made of? Well, if they're not being measured as particles, they are waves of probability in mathematical space. Now, these waves of probability in mathematical space don't have mass, don't have energy. They're not material things, but when you measure the, do a measurement, they show up as particles. So, is the f world physical? Now, Einstein was what is called a realist, and he was arguing with all his colleagues right to the day he died that the world is real. Everybody uh, said uh, if he he's famous for saying if no one was looking at the moon it would still be there well he was wrong in my opinion 
he was a naive realist, which means that the picture of the world is the look of it. Well, I look at the Empire State Building, you look at it, it looks probably the same to you and me, but what does it look to an insect with a hundred eyes? What does it look to a snake that only senses infrared? What does it look to a bat that only knows the echo of ultrasound? So the Empire State Building, the look of it is a human look. It's not a crocodile look. And you can't assume that the human sensory apparatus with its narrow bandwidth of experience is the only reality. Furthermore, you can't explain why the Empire State Building looks like what it is looking like if only photons are coming to your eyes. So this naive realism slowly is being dismantled by people who seriously think about reality. The second form of realism is uh, called representational realism. The world is real. It looks a certain way to human beings because of the way the human brain is, but it may look different to other brains. But there's a representation of the world in the brain, which is electrochemical. Okay, how does that express itself as that picture, as that look? That's part of the hard problem we can't say. So representational realism is also out. There's a third form of realism that's called scientific realism. The world looks like, you know, it has colors and textures and solidity, but it's actually made up of atoms and particles and force fields and gravity and strong and weak interactions. Okay, so then why does it look the way it looks? If it's made of particles, then why does it, this table appear solid? <laughs> I think we have rested our case. The world is not real. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually made out of consciousness. Consciousness modulates itself as what we call perception. Before you experience anything, you are aware, and then that awareness prog is programmed in different species to modulate itself as certain perceptual activities that we as humans call the physical world. But once you understand that, you'll see if there's nothing that's real, physical world is not real, then your body is not real either. Okay, so your body is an activity, a perceptual activity of consciousness, in consciousness, known in consciousness, constantly transforming from a zygote to an embryo to a toddler to a baby to a young um, teenager to an adult and finally it's gone. So the physical body is not a thing, it's an activity and what's an activity of is consciousness experiencing itself as that perception. Once we get this, and I hope people will get it one day, this is what MetaHuman is also about, that consciousness is the only reality, that our experiences in consciousness are a species-specific experience, other species have their own experiences. We can even communicate with species, like dogs and cats, and some people communicate with birds, some with animals, um, because as the fundamental ground of existence, it's infinite, it's formless, it is no boundaries, but each species has a qualia program that gives it a certain experience. Human beings unlike other animals, 
they can create constructs. So when you're a baby, you don't know this is a table or this is a hand or that you have a body. All your experiences is colors, sensations, a gooey universe with lots of colors, sensations, images, no thoughts yet, just a sense of wonder and confusion. And then we tell, the, we introduce concept, concepts. You're a male, you're American, you're human, that's a star, that's a galaxy, that's the planet Earth, this is the, how the scientific worldview works. So you suddenly now are looking at the world through a filter. Consciousness has become a conditioned mind that is giving you the experience of physical world and a physical body. And now because you've constructed this thing in your consciousness, now you're worried about birth, death, all these. These are human constructs. Sure. There's no birth, there's no death, there's no physical body, there's no universe. There's consciousness, it's infinite, and you're it. Once so. you transform yourself to that level and deconstruct every assumption, you're ready to create a new universe. So what does this view mean for relationships, love specifically, love for oneself, love for partner, love for children, love for humanity. This love then, if you understand this deeper understanding that there's only one consciousness, whatever you want to call it, non-local awareness, one consciousness, if you want to call it spirit, consciousness, God, Ein Sof, uh, Brahman, it doesn't matter. And we are rivulets in this infinite ocean of consciousness. But because as humans we can transcend back to our source, we can actually understand love as the ultimate truth at the heart of creation, which is one consciousness with different modes of expression. And that love is is the deeper understanding but the experience more than the understanding because love is not based on a mere sentiment or emotion it's the ultimate truth which is we are inseparable from all existence and when you experience that you feel ecstasy you feel what is called flow or peak experiences or transcendent, unconditional love your love radiates from you like light from a bonfire denied to none focused on none and ultimate healing totally there it's that's why people do say love is heals but that's true love as unity consciousness and inseparability is healing because it restores you to your fundamental original state which is perfect homeostasis perfect self-regulation so your biology also heals that's the miracle of love that it is the ultimate healer even a, in a biological sense when you see yourself in another person that's love when you see yourself in an object even if it's a coffee cup that's beauty i'm pointing out deepak loves coffee we're enjoying coffee together and if you can look at this coffee cup with total awareness you would see it's the most gorgeous thing in existence because it's my buddy green coffee cup the whatever <laughs> but you know love beauty truth uh, are all the same thing. In Sanskrit words, satyam, truth, sundaram, beautiful, shivam, the ultimate being, which is love. So how do you explain to someone who may be 
you know, heartbroken or in a tough relationship and struggling, you know, philosophically understands what you're saying, but they're looking for, well, what can I do? I'm struggling right now. You know, it's February, Valentine's Day. What does this mean for me and my you outlook? You really don't understand love. You, you're, it's all self-importance. I'm struggling. I'm miserable. She didn't return my call. I don't have a date for Valentine. It's total narcissistic <laughs> self-pity. It's not love. Love is I love you irrespective. And then you can get all the love in the world that you want without even wanting it. Your presence will bring love because you're the ultimate giver of love. And that love includes compassion, empathy, non-judgment, non-valuation. It's beautiful. It's, it's the only truth there is. So, do you so for a person who's struggling, I said, stop thinking about yourself. Go do something for another person. Give them some affection. Give them some attention. Give them some appreciation and um, see what happens. And do you think, I love your perspective because true love, it's not just about you, obviously. It's, it's about never giving. It should be about you. If it's not about you, you'll attract all the love in the world. Uh, Anytime you're struggling with anything, just ask yourself, who am I thinking about? And then think about something else. I, I even said replace all your personal desires with the higher vision. So, you know, the, if in the, in the wisdom traditions, they say um, desires replaced by a bigger vision, which is desire for the collective good, transcendence and intention, and you can have anything you want in your life. These are the last three steps of yoga. Dharna, vision, dhyan, meditation, samadhi, transcendence. And this is the secret to the spontaneous fulfillment of any desire that you have. Great book. Hmm? Great book. Great book, yeah. I've, I've written that book. <laughs> so not exactly the opposite of love, but you know, think about another thing, death. I know that's something you... So the real answer to death is it's another human construct if you believe in the physical world then you have to believe in death and you have to believe in birth but once you understand that you are a formless being formless that experiences itself as form so right now that formless being is experiencing itself as a body mind called jason who's wearing a t-shirt spiritual gangster who's drinking coffee sitting at a table. This is the virtual reality that what you call I has embedded itself in. You, your body mind, and the world that you see are all part of the same virtual reality. You, the real you, is formless consciousness and once you identify with that, you see that every other identity you've had is provisional, whether it's husband or father or son or wife or founder of my Body Mind Green. All these are provisional identities that have a birth and a death, and they keep transforming. They're not real. The only absolute identity you have is infinite, formless, inconceivable, eternal, timeless being that morphs itself into any reality based on its constructs. 
So I wrote a book called Life After Death, which is about yes. all the different realms of consciousness that we can go to. Now, you know, if you're in tr uh, traditional religion, depending on your religion, say you're Catholic, then now, of course, there's heaven, there's hell, there's purgatory, and etc. Angels, fallen angels. The Buddhists have their own, um, you know, di divine and diabolical beings. They have different realms um, called bardos. Hindus talk about lokas, which is a Sanskrit word for locations. But all these locations are not actually locations in space-time. They're frequency domains of consciousness. And they're all equally real or equally unreal. If you think New York City is real, then all those bardos, those heavens and hells and purgatories are real because they're also human constructs, just as New York City is a human creation and a human construct. And even the Milky Way galaxy in your body is a human construct. Once you realize that, then it's all part of the virtual domain and you can upgrade it or you can downgrade it. Right now we have downgraded it, so we have this virtual reality of climate change and extinction of species and war and terrorism and eco-destruction and chaos and political upheaval and strife and basically ready for extinction. We are ready for extinction. Mm -hmm. That's downgrading the virtual reality, the, the immersive dreamscape that we're in. We've made it a nightmare. On the other hand, you can, if you focus on love, compassion, joy, empathy, reflection, transcendence, and intentionality and conscious choice making, the same thing could be a different world right now. Or there are other realms for conscious beings that have projected different realities. As long as you understand that your only real, non-provisional, absolute identity is what spiritual traditions call soul. I stay away from that because, again, it conjures up all kinds of ideologies and dogmas. But you are, there's a core being that is speaking to me right now, that is listening to me. And this conversation is happening in consciousness. People who are listening to us, it's happening in their consciousness too. That's the only reality. And that is infinitely flexible. It recycles as memories, which so your body is the recycling of memory and karma and desire and all that. We can go deeper into that, but it also evolves. So, you know, evolution of species. And by the way, whatever I'm saying, the scientists, the hardcore scientists will attack this. Because, you know, I'm saying that evolution is not Darwinian. Evolution is guided by consciousness. Evolution is not random. There is natural selection, but evolution is a never-ending horizon. Yeah, as Rumi said, I was once a rock, a plant. I was then a, a, a molecule. I was an animal. I was this, and now I'm a human, and one day I'll be an angel. Anything that you can imagine in the realm of consciousness and create a construct, and you can embed yourself in that, and that becomes your reality. But this is a process of conscious evolution. So what do you say to someone who has experienced the loss of a loved one? Well, your relationship with that loved one was in consciousness. And if you want to keep that relationship, it'll stay in consciousness eternally for as long as you want, and it will evolve in consciousness. We are essentially thought forms 
that appear as physical. So, you know, you dreamed, you had a dream last night. You probably don't remember the dream, but when you were in the dream, it was real. And this morning, it's over. Okay, but we also have experiences that normally people would call psychic experiences. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for the person who's having those experiences, they're feeling the presence of their loved one or they're communicating for their loved one. It's as real as this physical experience we're having. In fact, most of our experiences are not physical. They're in the form of thoughts, feelings, emotions, images. We live in, in a world that is not physical, but then, you know, once in a while we notice, oh, we, I have a body, etc. Or if, you have, or if you're sick or you're distressed, sure. then, you know, the physical overwhelms you. But the physical is the last projection of consciousness. It's the projection on the screen, the movie. You're not the movie. You're the creator of the movie. You're the, you're the director, protagonist, producer, villain, hero, so all at the same I time. I love that you said that because I was segueing to that. You know, we've talked about love, we've talked about death, and then let's talk about living. And this notion of you are the creator and director and producer of your own movie, what do you think stops most people from really creating and directing their own the, film? Uh, bamboozled by the hypnosis of social conditioning and it's been going on for thousands of years that's why it, it once in a while somebody breaks out of it and we either call them psychotic or they're a genius or they're a sage it's a motley group <laughs> of sages psychotics and geniuses who can pierce the veil of everyday reality and see that it's their creation and they can create anything they want so how do you break out of it any first of all question every assumption Every construct. Don't buy it just because, quote unquote, it's scientific or theological or philosophical or religious or even metaphysical. Uh, watch your thoughts. You know, this is the awareness of a thought is not a thought. In fact, the thought is a modification of awareness. So prior to any experience is this awareness. Ask yourself, am I here right now? Am I present now? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this whole concept of chitakash. It's a very interesting idea that goes back to the yogic traditions. So chit means consciousness, akash means the infinite space. Right now, you and I are engulfed in space. Right around us is space. Without the space, you wouldn't have any objects. The object and the space are distinct and yet, they're the same. The space is actually bubbling out as particles that create objects. So space, without the object, you wouldn't experience it. You can only experience the theater of space-time causality and motion in consciousness once there are objects, including biological organisms. But let's say we removed every object in this room including people and objects, there would be no experience of space either. That's the ultimate reality. It's inconceivable. It's formless. It's what they call chit akash. This space is accessible to you and me in the space between our thoughts, in the space between our emotions, in the space between every perception. So when I look at a plant there and the microphone here, this space is only possible because 
this perception and that perception are occurring. In this space right now is the experience of the plant, the microphone, you, me, and in fact the whole universe is in this unbounded space. One of the things you can do as a practical thing, and that's where mindful awareness comes in, is you settle into the pause between the breath, the in-breath, the out-breath. Or ask yourself, I wonder what my next thought is going to be. And you'll see that there's a space between this thought. And actually, if you close your eyes and say, I wonder what my next thought will be. There's stillness. Silent. If you unfocus your eyes right now and become aware of the space we're in, again, stillness. If you pause and focus, it's not the right word. Be aware of the space between choice, same space. The space between thoughts, the space between emotions, the space between intention, the space between sensation, the space between the sounds that I'm you know, you're listening to me, there's spaces between these sounds that you're hearing. Otherwise, it would be just, you know. But because there are spaces between thoughts, between words, between intention, between perception, between colors, between every experience, you shift your awareness and your identity becomes space. This experience happening right now is in Chitakash. Here is where you are having the experience of Deepak, of Jason, and this room. Where is this experience happening? Not here in the brain, not here in the eyes. Here in this space. This space is eternal, formless, and will continue to evolve as conscious beings or experiencers which are species-specific, different modes of observation, different objects observed, all in the matrix of Chitakash. This is the true matrix, and it's here now, and now is not a moment in time. Now is where qualia or qualities of experiences are bubbling in and out, and the only, only constant is the presence of being. Otherwise, this would be, you know, flashes of perception. So, we are it, but we are formless, and the form every form is a phenomenon, and every phenomenon is the bubbling of consciousness taking the shape of a thought or an emotion or a sensation or a perception or what we call the physical world. So you mentioned space, and it makes me think of New York City, a place with limited space, a place with tension between limited space and the great outdoors and space and attention within wellness seekers and, and living well and some people will say i need to, i can't i can't uh, live a certain way i can't be uh, as well as i want to be because i'm in the city and you spend a lot of time here so i'm curious so from the relative that. point of view if i think of myself as a skin-encapsulated ego squeezed into the <laughs> volume of a body in the span of a lifetime, then everything you say is true. And I need to take a break and take, you know, go to the mountains on the weekend or take a walk in the park or get grounded or walk on the beach or touch a tree or smell a rose. And relatively speaking, that is helpful. But in the absolute sense... 
if my identity is not this provisional ego identity squeezed into the volume of body of the span of lifetime, I'm totally independent of all that. I love it. So you are, you are a huge walker. And yes. I read a little, share a little bit about how much you walk. And what I also love is how you, what you do when you walk and how you walk and what that look. You're not just an average guy to say, I'm going to walk three miles and you go in a straight line. Like, talk about your process and what that looks like. I walk aimlessly without any intention other than being aware of sounds, sensations, images, feelings, thoughts. I surrender to the moment, the, the wonder of existence, and I savor every sensory experience. It's almost sensual, even sexual. It's very powerful when you are taking a walk in New York City, especially because you're traveling the world. I mean, I, I can go to Korea and China and India and Italy and Greece, all in New York City. And I, it's like a microcosm of the planet. And I just savor it. It's like this, the only word. It's an assault on my senses. And I don't try to interpret it. It's a, it's a joyful experience. And yeah, I do walk between five to 10 miles every day. That's awesome. I love your perspective. It's meditation in motion. Or That's I'll say it. mindful awareness in motion. Mindful awareness in motion, yes. So last question. You've got another book. This is like number 90 or 91? Yeah, something, something like that. Something like yeah, that. Yeah. You've written quite a few. 89, 90 something. or something like that. Uh, Metahuman. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. I think that evolution is a never-ending horizon. Why do you assume evolution has ended? I mean, there are some species for whom evolution has ended. But, you know, but for primates and humans, we are now in a different stage of our evolution. It's not literally random mutations, natural selection. We can choose our experiences. As we choose our experiences, we actually switch our brains on and off we create new connections. We even now know neuroplasticity says you can create new neurons, new connections between neurons. Genetics, epigenetics says every experience which is on certain genes and cert, uh, certain genes go off depending on, you know, even simple things like if you have love, compassion, joy, equanimity, the genes that cause self-regulation, they go up. If you're feeling hostility, anger, resentment, grievances, guilt, shame, the genes that cause inflammation go up, the genes that cause self-regulation go down. So we, by making conscious choices and practicing metacognition, metacognition is to be aware of experience as it is happening, fully aware of experience, which means being present to it, and then also being aware of choices, volition, as you make them, as a result of practicing metacognition and awareness of sensory experience, sound, touch, sight, taste, smell, awareness of body, awareness of the interior of the body, which is called introception, but the yogis call it pratyahara, withdrawal of the senses, and then focusing on what's happening inside, especially the heart, the lungs, and the gut. These are organs of deep wisdom, which has as many neurons as your brain. 
And, you know, when you say gut feelings or heart feelings or even lung feelings, bodily feelings or sensing the environment with your whole body instead of just the five senses or sensing the web of relationship and existence with the ecosystem or relationship with other people. When we start becoming metacognitive beings, we will evolve to meta-humans, which will means our biology will change. And non-local abilities like extrasensory perception, precognition, remembering other lifetimes, communicating without words, cross-species communication, all this will happen. We just have to change the model from realism to conscious realism. Where do you think you fit in the model? Say that again? Where are you between realism and... I'm at the edge. I feel very much at the edge. I'm only writing the book so I can get other people who are also on the edge to take the jump. I love it. Dr. Deepak Chopra, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks, guys.